myself prepared for wizardly combat. I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. So, Drogo and Big Baby came through again. We've got audio from Gen Con 2016, Goodman Games Seminar, How to Write Adventure Modules That Don't Suck. I'm going ahead and posting this without editing the audio. Hopefully it doesn't blow out your eardrums. All right, happy listening. Is this live? Yeah, honey. Wait, what? Say hi. Hi, world of awesomeness. You are in the seminar called How to Write Adventure Modules That Do Not Suck. Um, we'll introduce ourselves and then we'll talk about how to write adventure modules. So Harley, why don't you go first? Hey guys, I'm Harley Stroh. Um, I've been writing for Goodman Games since DCC 17. And I ha I've had the privilege of participating in um, some of the latest iteration of Goodman Games uh, Dungeon Call Classics. The most recent of which is uh, Journey to the Center of Aerith and its um, supplement uh, The Lost City of Baraka. I'm Jim Wampler, and I uh, write, edit, and sometimes lay out an art direct for Goodman Games. And do websites. And do websites. And uh, since uh, a couple years ago when I weaseled my way in, uh, author of the Mute Crawl Classics Kickstarter, and anybody here who backed that, thank you from the bottom of my heart for backing that. And some Purple Planet adventures in the uh, Memoirs of Safa. My name is Joseph Goodman. I wrote DCC RPG as well as a bunch of adventures for it and some other stuff a long time ago. And I've published a lot of adventures, so my contribution here will be more what I look for in published adventures as opposed to how to write them. Well, he's written a lot of adventures I actually like, but uh, I'm Joe Goodman. I've written uh, various materials for Wizards of the Coast, Cobalt Press, Lamentations of Plain Princess, Goodman Games, and uh, that's probably it. Hi, uh, I'm Chris Doyle. I've been uh, freelancing since uh, the early 90s. We worked for West End Games until they went out of business, TSR until they went out of business. It's <laughs> a little bit of a theme there. A little bit of a theme there. Uh, uh, for Goodman Games, the last uh, 10 years, I've been uh, writing uh, the, the 3.0, the 3.5 uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, and then more recently, the 5th edition. Uh, Modules. So. And I'm Michael Curtis. I've been coming games since about 2008 when I things off with the Dungeon Alphabet. And since then, I've done my I don't know, the 12, 15, 20 adventures, something like that, and from anywhere from uh, new material for old school Judges Guild to uh, Fifth Edition to Metamorphosis Alpha, and of course uh, a lot of DCC. And I'm currently the lead writer on DCC Line One. So we've done this seminar a couple times, and I figured today, just to shake it up and make it a little different, we've been talking, I didn't tell you, so let me tell you guys what we're doing. <laughs> I'm shaking up. <laughs> well, um, you can interpret this how you want, but let's talk about how we've read something that's inspired us, and how it sort of channeled our creativity to write something, because at least from my own experience, when I read, it really sort of focuses me and changes the way I write and changes the idea I think about. Um, that's just a place to start, we can all kick it off, and then we can 
take questions from you guys, um, and you can steer us wherever you want to go. Uh, usually when we do this, some people want to write for themselves, other people want to write for publications. Um, this is less about how to get published and more about just how to write exciting, interesting stuff that's fun to play or fun to read, so we'll, we'll steer in that direction. Uh, but for me, let me just, um, now that I kicked off the topic, <laughs> I just say that for me, reading great fiction drives me in a certain way. We all read, some people read game books, some people read fiction, etc. But a lot of times, if I want to write a horror adventure, for example, I go read some Clark Ashton Smith and some, you know, some Abraham Merritt and some H.P. Lovecraft, um, and it just gets me in the right frame of mind. Like it, it, the vocabulary they use starts to infiltrate my thoughts. I start to think in a certain way, um, and it's just something I've used to inspire me to get the right mood for an adventure. So a lot of the adventures I write, or if I like, I have this, I have this cool idea for an adventure. Um, but a wizard named Thakulon, who became so powerful he could challenge even the gods, and he achieved immortality and you know, could not be defeated by any means. So the gods, to defeat him, since they could not kill him, they chopped his body into a thousand parts and scattered it amongst the cosmos. So the adventure involves, finally, after many eons, um, his heart and his brain end up on the same planet and then start to reassemble. And so the adventure is about how do you destroy somebody who literally cannot be destroyed, but he can be sliced up into lots of little pieces. Um, but to, to, I've been working on this for years now, and it's halfway built in my head. But whenever I feel like working on something, I go read something that sort of is along the, the themes of sort of horror. Um, it's less about action and more about horror. Um, and that gets my brain thinking the right way, and, and that's why I work on that. So some thoughts on how to get your thoughts started on a subject. Do you guys have any some more ideas on those subjects? Anyway, to you guys. Sure. Um, so for, for me, I'm more of a visual person. What inspires me is, is artwork. I was working on Journey to the Center of Aerith, and then Doug Kovacs turned in this amazing cover of uh, these elephant-headed gods and like this really like almost uh, interwoven staircase thing at the very at the center of the planet, and it made me go back to what I had written, and I gave another ten thousand words to Joseph trying to live up to that artwork. And then, you know, I think for a lot of us, you know, we see we see, it's the artwork that inspires us to. Um, create a cool story around it, you know, because we can, the artwork just presents itself and we can imprint whatever story that we find really passionate or really exciting, you know, into that artwork and build off of it. I'm lucky because I get to work with Doug Kovacs that, you know, he's in-house and I get to be inspired by him, but there's, there's artwork everywhere, right, that we all find exciting, like, oh, that's a sweet image. Let me write the story to that. Uh, I agree very much with what's been said, but I uh, can tell you why. Uh, Gary Gygax and Jim Ward and all those guys that wrote the original version of everybody's favorite fantasy game based it all on the uh, pulp fantasy and science fiction paperbacks that they were reading at the time. So that was their primary source. There's a thing that happens with any entertainment, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever. It's always inspired by some primary source for the creators from that, but as it goes on longer and longer, it becomes more and more self-referential and moves away from the primary sources. And I'm of the personal opinion that the various editions of D and subsequent editions of D and D became more and more about D and D rather than the fantasy fiction that inspired it. So I'm exactly with these guys um, uh, going back. I did that myself for Mutant Crawl Classics. Went back and rewrote things I'd read 30 years ago to get freshened up with them and a little bit about how to do this yourself and, and maybe someday get published or self-published. That's the thing that everybody in this room has. We, we take these guys like Gary Gygax and deify them. 
and that they were great and did this fantastic, great thing. That's, that, and thinking of it in that way makes it a challenge that I don't think I'm good enough to do. I don't even think I'm as good a writer as most of these guys up here. But what I do have is my own unique history of the media I've consumed all floating around in my head, which I can freshen up by going back and rereading it. And that personal uh, fantasy experience, I can then put into my works. For example, I go around saying all the time that uh, New Car Classics, one of the heavy in inspirations for me was the old Jack Kirby comic, Commandy, Last Boy of Earth. Well, when Mutant Car Classics comes out and you read it, and if you go back and read the old Jack Kirby comics, on the surface, they don't have a lot in common. Uh, it's a very, uh, a very traditional post-apocalypse that happened within a generation after the nuclear war or whatever it was. Uh, Commandy himself is the grandson of somebody who lived before those times where Mutant Car Classics is much later in the future. What I took from Jack Kirby was the way he would take a single issue of a comic and cram eight great ideas into it. Enough ideas for eight issues, he would put it to one and then do it again the next issue. And that syncs with what Joseph and these guys do with Dungeon Car Classics, where you take a traditional fantasy trope and then crank it up to 11 at the end. That Jack Kirby did that in a comic. Does that make sense? So uh, primary sources are where it's at. Cool. You guys want to talk about that? Uh, just other media, like <clears throat> you brought up comic books. Um, I like to watch a lot of like uh, crappy fantasy movies. <laughs> so we all my do. favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just I don't know. There's usually a lot of just bizarrely bad ideas in there, and uh, but for some reason I like to think about them and see how I can make them better and and rip them off and turn them into my own thing. Um, yeah, I actually don't get a lot of my inspiration from novels. I actually get it from game books and uh, adventure modules that have been published. I have a huge collection. Started, uh, I've got books from back into the 70s, you know, some of the earliest ones that were published, all the way up to some that were probably published two or three weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and I read every single one of them, and uh, I think I get more value out of reading the ones that suck. <laughs> because then I can find out these are things I don't want to do. And thanks, thanks to the, the Die 20 glut a few years ago, we have lots of material that we can look at and say, yeah, this is something I do not want to do, um, as well as the old ones. And then and, and definitely if my library's fairly expansive so that you know, if I'm gonna work on a, uh, um, you know, a book about uh, hobgoblins or whatever, you know, I'll just pull those old classic ones out that were about hobgoblins and see what they did and then try and put a little bit of a modern spin on them. But, still kind of throw it back to the old school as well. So so sometimes it's important to, to read the good and the bad, much like you like the old the old crappy movies. Sometimes you can get something out of it. And then the only other thing I'll just quickly throw in there for inspiration is I, I keep with me, it's actually within my backpack, a notebook where I write notes down where I hit inspiration at any time, middle of the night, you know, watching Sesame Street with my kid, you know, you get an idea or just something will just trigger something and, and I've gotten to the age now where if I don't write it down, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> so it's like, write it down, record it, whatever, everybody's got a smartphone now. I mean, that's like a great thing too because you never know when you might need that little tidbit or something that you can weave into an adventure or something or make a story complete. I think, uh, I mean, I'm well versed obviously in know our, our fantasy uh, our heritage and so have you but uh, to be honest well especially after reading Fritz Leiber two and a half times for the last year you know I, I'm actually made a shooing uh, basically straight fantasy uh, a lot lately and for the for the most part is uh, I just try to read everything under the sun because I never try to find I mean uh, my background is I have a degree in English lit and a minor in comparative religion so I'm pretty much used to drawing from all sorts of sources um, you know I, I chain coffin for one thing you know chain coffin uh, 
it draws a lot on Manly Wave Owen, which is Appendix N, but there's also a good amount of William Faulkner's as I lay dying in there as well. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I hate to kind of pigeonhole myself. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of, as Chris said, you know, there's, there's a, you know, Sesame Street you can find an idea from. So, you know, uh, anything from, you know, Finnish mythology, which actually Guy Gags pulled a lot from. Um, uh, uh, the Old Gods Return, that actually goes in a lot of, you know, uh, Finnish and Scandinavian mythology to, for, for Christmas uh, adventure. And, uh, you know, I'm a big armchair historic in French and Indian War, especially in the northeast of the United States. That stuff fascinates me, and that kind of trickles down into my work as well. So there's no sure, there's no any one single place where you're going to, you know, get inspiration from. So uh, don't be afraid just to limit yourself to, you know, sci-fi or fantasy or whatever you want to call it. So. So I was thinking maybe we could take a couple questions on this topic and then we'll sort of move on to the next topic. Anybody have any questions on the subject of inspirations or media or books or things like that? What's the next topic? I have yeah. a question. Um, the thing about media and novels and all of that, those tend to be um, fairly under the creator's control. And by that I mean you have a character and the character undergoes certain things what happens and in what order is under the author's control. The thing about taking inspiration and turning it into an adventure is that I'm handing it off to people who are going to take this into directions that I never expected. Do you have any ideas for how to, you know, how would you convert something that really, really inspired you in a piece of literature and assess, well, is this something that I can build into my, into my adventure or is this something that only works <coughs> If I have complete creative control over this, well, I mean, I, I think it depends actually on what you're running. I think if if you're running like you know Firefly, the role-playing game, and everybody else is familiar with the source the source material, I mean, everybody's going to be kind of on the same boat. So you know, at least at least the, the kind of the established uh, there's some sort of parameters established. You know, as a social contract amongst the group, it's like you know we're not suddenly going to turn this into you know you know the, well actually Firefly can pretty much turn into anything. It's still you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that that's, that's I'm sure we'll touch on that before this night is over. But the idea between the railroad adventure, where you know the, the the game master or the writer has okay, this is this is the plot, and you know come hell or high water, the PCs are going to get in this, and they are just going to you know they're going to they're going to run through my little maze. Um, that is uh, that is that is I'm sure we'll discuss that can be poor adventure design. <laughs> um, I mean, you have to be willing to be hands off. I mean, you can you can hope for the best, hope for the best, and plan for the worst. I think actually that's the best way to sum it up uh, in in that kind of situation because uh, they'll they'll no matter what it comes up, that uh, they'll come up with an idea that you never foresaw. So um, things that just plain don't work. I mean, I've, I found that I can never make time travel work. Because it works fantastically in a Time novel when I'm directing it, mm -hmm. but it works horrendously when you actually let players do it. So I wonder, are there any things that you just don't blame won't work, don't touch it, it'll suck? Well, I think that's the challenge, right? Yeah. Like, the great time travel adventure has not yet been written. And so, you know, six months from now, you're going to be brokering this over in your brain, and you're going to find a way to make it work. You know, like, all the, all the old tropes, there's a great giant's adventure out there just dying to be written by someone who's passionate about whatever, like Scandinavian giants or ancient Norse myth, and they're going to finally incorporate that into something that, you know, other people have done, and it's tired, and it's old, and it's boring. But somebody's going to find it, they're going to be passionate about it, and they're going to get that piece that's just right. And it could be time travel, which hasn't been done really well, or at least I haven't encountered it yet. You know, it could be any one of these millions of exhausted tropes. Um, and they're going to come across it, you know, and because they're passionate about it, because they're working it over their head, they're going to find something that works. And so, 
Um, which is which is different from what you were talking about, you know, with character agency and railroads. I think, you know, for all of us as judges, what we're really excited the best the best part of our job, your job, is when we write something, the players go completely off the track, you're like, that's amazing. Like if they you know, if they go to A to B to C, well that's that's cool, it follows the plot, but I don't learn anything from that. When I when I said to them A, and they think around everything that I, you know, possibly could have come up with, that's the exciting part. That's new. That's what like you know, if 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 a if a judge is willing, you know, to step back and and make enough stuff up as they go and provide that 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 world for the players to play in, that's 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 what we find exciting, right? That's that's when it's new to us, even though we created it. But that's different. Sorry. From from a practical writing uh, aspect, I uh, am very uh, strong in the belief because I sometimes function on both sides of the fence. Sometimes I'm the writer submitting to an editor, and sometimes I'm the editor having writers write for me. Is uh, just keys to good professional creative writing, with one of which is never fall in love with your own ideas. Always be willing to go back and root it out if you think it doesn't work later, or you play test it and, and it obviously doesn't work. Um, I mean, if you're writing a screenplay or a novel, that's still good advice. And if you work with a good editor, have somebody to bounce these things off of. And that can be players in a play test, but uh, professionally you can be an editor. I mean, Joseph will give notes. You know, not everything we turn in is perfect when we turn it in or, or publishable. That's, you know, to, to monitor the ego skin you have in the, in the uh, game. And that's saying it when I, I've done it. I've, I've fallen so in love with an idea when I had it that I just want it in there and somebody has to put their foot down and tell me no. And what I've learned as a, a professional writer is to always take that in, even when I disagree with it in my fingernail cuticles, I disagree with it. Take it in, look at it objectively, and even if it's me arguing back for the idea, the, the, the back and forth will change and evolve the idea, and it always comes out better in the end than what I started with. Does that make sense? Yeah. And players are great for that. If you have an adventure you want to run, run it in a con with total strangers. You'll be amazed how much better it will become if you can pull it off with strangers. You all have a style. You all have a relationship with your players. They know to expect certain things. Um, you know, I've long ago before... It's in, when you work with writers and they're so used to explaining certain things, they'll turn your manuscripts sometimes before they've had a chance to publicly play test it, and there'll be gaping holes in the manuscript where they forgot to explain something, like how you got to the dungeon or what's in the second room, because they would either ad-lib it or it's so normal to them and their players to just uh, skip that part. Or it happens at the table and they, they don't, until you get in front of a, a public play test group or give your module to a third party to actually play test and you watch it or something, then you realize, like, oh, I never actually described that at all. Um, so yeah, just run it publicly with strangers, and that's a great way to get better. Uh, just to, to bring it sort of going around, I think one of the things you were kind of looking for a way, if it was possible, to kind of get the, get the characters to you know get the, get the characters from straying off completely, you know, where the right. I mean, actually, no writer has completely. If you talk to any fiction writer, they say the characters have a life of their own, you know. And after a while, you may think like this is going, and a novel will go entirely different way. You just have to go along for the ride. If, in your situation, if you're trying, if you have some, if you have a plot line involved, and you don't want to be the railroad, like, okay, well, all right, well, you know, there's, there's only one, there's only one way out of town, and it's got to go this way. A good way to do that is to get 
is to get the players invested in where you want them to go. I mean, if, if the big bad guy is, 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 is a character that's been ongoing and has been a foil for the adventurers, you know, the players in actual time for like the last six months and has constantly, you know, kind of been the thorn in their side and showing up. Now, this is kind of the time where it comes time to confront him. Now, the players, not, not even the characters, the players themselves, oh, I hate this son of a, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to get him. They're going to be much more willing to go along with the ride and follow that, you know, and then, and then it's not railroading because now they're along for it. Everybody's invested in it. So they're not, they're not like, you know, they're not the mule kind of in their traces trying to, you know, just dragging against the pole of it. So uh, that's actually, that's probably the best advice I can give. Uh, if you get the players, not just the characters, but the players themselves invested in the plot, uh, they will tend to go, they, they'll forgive any railroading because that's where, that's where they want to go anyway, so. I do uh, like a lot more like a sandbox style, and uh, what I try to do is just not make too many assumptions about what the players are going to do, or what the what characters are, uh, how they're going to react. I mean, you you never know. There's one uh, party of you know the the way the game uh, the players play is you know they're all want to be heroes or something, and then there's another party that's you know all drow that want to kill everybody or something and. Try, just try not to assume too much. Um, I, I at least try not to assume too much when I'm running adventures of, like, uh, I guess make judgments about what uh, what the characters are going to want to do in the situation. I try to just like set up the all the players, set up the stage for you know the real stars of the show, which are the players, to come in and do their thing. Cool. So I have another topic for you guys. Um, what do you do in quote real life to give you ideas for adventures to make your life to make your adventures better? Obviously, other than gaming, but is it you know physical places you go? Do you have a retreat you go to write? Do you um, do certain activities? Are there people you hang out with? What sort of things inspire you to, to write better adventures? And I can go first if you want. Or you want to go first? I was gonna say I, I just go out and try to do new things. Go hiking. Um, uh, Saturday when I get back to Seattle, I'm going to go tap dancing. I'm taking a tap dancing class. <laughs> I can't wait for that. <laughs> is that off Sesame Street? No, no, no. You and my girlfriend, we're going to go take a tap dancing class. But I don't know. I just try to say yes to just doing things that I've never done before. And um, I don't know. I don't know. But you just break out of your own patterns and uh, feel like my thinking breaks out of patterns a lot of times. No, I totally agree. What were you going to say? Well, yeah, so I got, there's places, I live in California, and it's, it's, California's actually amazing. There's all these natural animal migrations that come through, so like you can watch the whales migrate in January, the butterflies come through in November. Um, there's a spot near me where the, uh, the elephant seals come, and first all the males fight, then they have the babies, and the babies swim away, but for like a couple months every year, you can see like animals the size of Volkswagens just sitting on beaches outside the city, so it's crazy, but I, I so I do a lot of outdoorsy stuff. I just go into places that are weird or unusual or things that will break the pattern of the thought and make you think of new things or make you encounter fresh stuff, um, whatever that might be. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, um, we took a family vacation and uh, we went to a mammoth caves uh, down in Kentucky, and and it was amazing. I mean, I've been in caves before, but um, that kind of takes it to a different level. And we hiked like I don't know, six miles through the caves over the course of a couple of days. And it was very inspiring. It was it was amazing to actually, you know, get in a cave, be in a cave, have them shut all the lights off on you, and that um, any kind of real life experiences like that that you think are gonna, you know, translate 
um, are certainly will uh, will help out. So uh, yeah, I think we all kind of look at that. I mean, I'm not the type of person to go and lay on the beach for a couple of days, but yeah, throw me in some caves, you know. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. So you know, because I could use that. As and everybody, all my coworkers are like, "Why are you going to you know Kentucky in caves?" And I was like, "Well, it's like I kind of have another reason too." So um, so it works out really good. Chain smoke and mainline caffeine. No, uh, so <laughs> I, I, I love this because I, I call it the idea drawer. I have to go to the idea drawer to get new ideas for what I'm writing, and the idea drawer only replenishes itself at a certain speed. I mean, the speed can vary. So uh, I'm an insatiable reader, and where Mike is an English lit major and reads a lot of uh, English literature, I'm a science guy, so I uh, read a lot of physics books that are over my head. Uh, and uh, a lot of psychology because uh, besides fine art, I studied psychology in uh, college. So right now I'm reading my way through uh, an appendix and author series and uh, uh, a book from 1976 called The Awakening of the Human Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind. And I get ideas out of that. You know, I get ideas out of watching Mythbusters. I'm addicted to Mythbusters and the amazing number of dungeon ideas. Um, I've pulled some adventure plots from the old TV show Lost in Space, which was a very silly show, but, you know, there's a transmat device that accidentally beams Will Robinson to Earth in one episode. I put that in a camera world adventure. My players were in the Appalachian Mountains, found one, and next thing they knew they were in the Appalachian, post apocalyptic Appalachian Mountains, they were on a jungle, and they thought they'd just been transported somewhere else to a jungle. Six months later, they figured out they were on the Starship board. Wow. And that came from a Lost in Space episode of all the silly things. So just mass media consumption, and, and along with my <coughs> personal interest. Let's talk about writing. We titled this seminar how to write adventure modules. So I'm going to talk a little bit about reading submissions, and you guys, let's talk about how you actually convey it to the reader, how do you get this great adventure. But. Uh, I can tell you from my own experience that when people turn in adventure submissions, um, there's a when you play a game, you're in this world, right? You always want to convey that whole world to the reader, and so people often turn in submissions that have a very long introduction and lots of background material and the lineage of the king and his descendants and the, the nature of the the kingdom and they produce logs in this corner and they produce like whatever they hunt animals in this corner and a lot of background material, and it's very common for me to go through and say essentially you don't need 90% of this material to actually play the adventure. Frequently you need virtually none of it. You can get away with back, a couple of paragraphs of background and jump in. So I'll tell you one of the, just the advice I feel I give frequently to a lot of people, not these guys, but a lot of other people who I haven't worked with as long is uh, basically start the adventure right away, like cut to the chase. You don't need much background or introduction. Really if you need more than like two or three paragraphs, you've got too much. Because the typical reader who wants to play an adventure, they're going to integrate it in their campaign, right? They have their own flavor, they have their own players, they're doing something already, they're already sixth level or whatever they are, and they just want to, I mean, you guys know, nobody buys an adventure and runs it exactly as written. You all adapt it somehow. So don't give them four pages of background that they're going to throw out anyway. Give them four paragraphs max and then jump to the chase. Um, in terms of how do you write it, right? You have to be very self-critical and actually go look and say, cool, I wrote my first draft, and now I'm going to go back and actually, like, my basic advice is essentially cut out 75% of the word count before the first area because you probably don't need it. I don't know if you guys have advice on the actual writing part and how to communicate it. Um, I guess I'll jump on You know, I guess a lot of times, and, and this relates to the backstory of, of the module that you're writing, is you can, you know, if you have a lot of that material in the background or not, you know, it's only useful if there's a way to convey that to the players. 
Um, and that's, you know, that could be used through the use of handouts, through the use of MPC interaction. So, so if you are going to have those two or three pages as opposed to two or three paragraphs, um, you really have to be thinking, well, all right, and it, might be, it, could be the, it could be great, it could be an amazing setup to a story, um, but if there's no way that the players can learn that, they're, they're going to miss out on it, and then it just becomes a group of encounters. So, um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna really put a lot into your background, you got to really be thinking how is that how's that story going to be advanced, and how are the players going to learn that, you know? And you can't necessarily rely on the game master to get to, to fill those gaps in because a lot of the game masters that are purchasing products products, you know, they they don't have that kind of time to do all that back. So they want to grab something and run, and they want to they want to run it. So so you really need to be keeping that um, first and foremost in your mind. Well, the, sorry, the, the joy is in playing the game. Right. Uh, and studying textbook. Yeah, exactly. And there's a convention in a lot of a lot of movies, you know, where it all comes together when the <coughs> the villain gives his speech at the end, you know. Then after he talks for five minutes, suddenly you understand it. Um, in the adventure module, you need some mechanism to convey to the players like all the the pieces that come together, whether it's the background or the final connecting points or what the plot was or the underlying saga or whatever. Yeah, and that's a great point. It's either the villain speech or they find the villain's diary. Or it's an NPC who interacts with them somehow, or they find it inscribed on the walls of the you know the temple. You gotta have some mechanism to convey the important information, and if you don't, it's just wasted background material. I have never met a group of player characters who will sit still for the villain speech. Yes. <laughs> and then it's a lot of tradition. Let's get it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's gotta happen fast. It's yeah. I uh, my read aloud text is too long, and I know it. And uh, I mean, obviously, it's passing muster and getting published. But I'm—I know it's too long, and I'm working on that. And uh, I actually—I guess I lied because I'm looking at writers that I know can write those beautiful, concise sentences with a few words, like Henry Miller. And anyway, so I've been looking at a little bit of that. Plus, Gary Gygax was really good at that. I mean, people think of High Gygaxian as this long and flowery, but very Gary was very concise in how he would lay something out. Um, the uh, practical. I think we probably all heard this at some point in freshman comp or in college. Uh, I read my own read aloud text aloud to oh, myself sure. yeah. because I'm impatient with long read aloud text. And as I read what I just wrote to myself, I immediately get a sense of, oh, no, that's got to go. That's too much. What were you thinking? Because in my head, it's different than when it comes out my mouth. When it comes out my mouth, I hear it. And I love flowery language, but in the read aloud text, it's not good. <laughs> if you're doing a word that you can't naturally pronounce and say, and if you go back to the original Gygax modules, we were talking about this today. You know, we turn into these adventures these days that are 64 pages or 32 pages or 96 pages. All the great adventures you remember from when you were a kid, Gygax wrote them all in 16 pages or less. It's staggering how short the original TSR modules are. Go back and read them again for inspiration. You can cram a ton of adventure in virtually no words if you, if you do it right and he did it right. And I'd also say if, if you are really tied to this big backstory, um, uh, see if you can trim it down to a couple paragraphs like Joseph is saying and see if you can't tell it in the adventure somewhere else but you know uh, a lot of a lot of times uh, I'm trying to think of some adventures but I've, I've seen adventures uh, you know where I don't know like there's like a, a skeleton sitting on the throne or something and there's a goblet and to the side and the players already know oh well the king was poisoned or something like they can put together this stuff and you can tell them the story without like having this long read aloud text that only the DM's going to read and he's going to have to remember, um, possibly. They'll put together more than you think. Right, yeah. Okay. yeah. Any questions you guys have so far before we go on to the next topic?
Are we that clear? <laughs> well, obviously we write adventure adventure models that don't suck. So. <laughs> Feel free to defer this um, to, to later. Maybe it's a segue into a, a future topic. But can you name a few adventure modules that you think are really exemplary? That we didn't write? Right. I don't care who wrote them. If you are proud of your work and, and think that it's a good one for us to look at for inspiration, by all means. Yeah, no. I was. I was talking about Joe about this earlier today. So it's it's in the DCC line, but I didn't write it. Um, Joe, uh, one of the first adventures he did for Goodman Games was uh, the one who watches from below. And um, up to that point, um, many of our DCCs had been treading on. They were they were turned up to eleven, but they were fairly traditional um, adventures, and they were they were definitely within the scope of of, of what we think of adventures. And then Joe stepped up, and um, well, I don't know. Give away the secret. He has a really amazing handout that you use at the table. Don't and give away it, the secret. It's okay. All right. If it's like it's five years old. At some point, you know, the character a, a character possibly gets cursed, and then the player is forced, you know, to wear this mask over their face, and all they can do is communicate with their eyes. That's freaking sweet, right? Like, <laughs> we're like, we've been gaming for thirty years. Why hasn't somebody like done that yet? And. Um, and I think that was a that would make marked a real breakwater for uh, Dungeon Call Classics like role playing game line because after that we were all like all right well Joe did this thing that is so sweet what can I come up with what's my what are my eight cool ideas that I'm going to cram in here and um, and and similarly like you know when, whether it's for your home game because you know as judges we're always trying to provide really memorable experiences or if it's something you're writing for publication um, you know we we should be trying to 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 come up with um, like really fun, exciting. Like, where did that idea come from, Joe? Like, where did that? You, you didn't get that from. Where, where did you get it? Like, was that from tap dancing? No, <laughs> I haven't taken the class yet. <laughs> fun uh, travel. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember anything. He was trapped in a place where he could only communicate with his eyes. He was really scared. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of stuff in that in that module. I was like years of things I had thought about and kind of incorporated into some other like at the table adventures. And then so that event that module was the first time that a publisher had totally let me loose and been like write whatever you want. So thank you, Joe, for that. So and you got the benefit of like all this pent up creativity that got slammed into one mod. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 my adventure that doesn't suck. But, but just uh, Harley and Harley and I were actually talking about this this morning or we breakfasted, and I, I brought up the fact is that if and Joe kind of just reiterated, that, if you if at the end of your at the end of whatever you're writing your hour writing or something, if you look back and you see something that is in your adventure and you have no clue where that came from. That is a sign of brilliance. You're probably onto something right there, like because you were just tapped into the id. You know, some sort of this is verbal to the surface. Like I, I don't know where I came up with that idea, but that's a great idea. So uh, if if you can't if you can't follow logically the track of where an idea came from, chances are it's something that's you know nobody can hear to sell. Um, <laughs> chances are it's an idea that nobody else has seen before either. So so well, Michael Curtis, give us an adventure that doesn't suck. Do I have a mission that doesn't suck? Name one. Um, you know, actually, I was just trying to think about that. Uh, I mean, there's there's some that you can appreciate from from a judge's point of view reading, and then there's other that you appreciate through actually playing through. And I'm a firm believer is that there's no such thing as a terrible module in the hands of a great game master. Uh, you can they can make anything interesting, you know. Um, some of the like the worst railroad whatsoever in a you know in a genre that you wouldn't even like, you know. And somebody who's really you know effervescent and you know is, is great and can handle it can make a just hold you in the palm of your hand. Um, 
I was trying to think, of, maybe it's just because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Friday here at Gen Con. I was trying to think of like, the only one that really stand out for me is, uh, of all the, if anybody's familiar with the, uh, the Call of Cthulhu Adventure, The Haunting, it's basically like the Keep on the Borderlands version of it. That is like, that is, it's like the archetype for the Call of Cthulhu investigation. I mean, it has all the great little elements in there. It sucks you in. You know, there's an adventure to be solved. It's, it's a classic haunted house trope. And, you know, you're going in there, but, you know, at one point you get attacked by, like, a bed. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just something that sounds really stupid, but, I mean, there's a reason that it is, it is like the, it's like the, I call it the Keep on the Borderlands of Call of Cthulhu. And, and it's literally like five pages. I mean, that so it's it's very succinct and it wraps everything up. That that's my favorite. I mean, I've run that thing more than ever. And I, I just may be in love with it just because I love a good creepy story, you know. So, um, but that, that's really that was the one that jumped out of my head. It's something that I that that's my apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pass the mic. Um, go. I've got one, but bear with me because I'm going to lead in with why first. Um, I, when I'm writing adventures, I try and think about what's the coin of trade of this uh, adventure role-playing business to begin with. What are you win in a role-playing game? And my thesis is what you're winning is a good story and bragging rights. That's what you win when you come through these things. Even a TPK, if it happens spectacularly enough, can be a brag-worthy story that you tell years down the road. I mean, there's a whole convention of people that are telling character stories right now. Yeah. And the more bragworthy the story, the more memorable the adventure. Um, my favorite one, the, the adventure that blew our teenage minds in 1979 or 80 was Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, because we went in not knowing, right? I, uh, I can spoil a 30-year-old adventure, right? <laughs> Enough times, not much. <laughs> adventure to the Barrier Peaks, uh, Gary Gygax wrote it, very much based on Jim Ward writing Metamorphosis off at the time, where a uh, baron hires the player characters at a fairly high level to go find go investigate this cave that's spitting out strange monsters and you get up there and the cave is a module from a generational starship that crashed into Greyhawk. And you go in there with, you know, robots and aliens and mutants and it's a murder factory adventure just this side of Tomb of Horrors. So when we went through that as kids, it was the most amazing adventure ever because of the stories it generated about what did we do in this section, what did we do in that section. You know, we got jumped by robots and almost killed till the magic user polymorphed one of us into a rust monster, and then we didn't need key cards anymore because we just zapped through doors with the rust monster. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. So, cool. Adventure to the Barrier Peaks, to avoid being a corporate show and talk about how much I like Frozen in Time and San Francisco. And, so <laughs> and the one who watches below, well, this will tie in specifically to, to the one who watches below. I was in a play test at a Gen Con a few years ago before it was published with the one who watches below. And uh, I managed to pull off a stunt that rescued half the party from a TPK. And I've walked around and talked about that ever since. And that's why the one who watches below from below is one of my favorite TCC adventures. That's cool. Um, I'd say um, uh, Razor Coast, um, a couple of years ago, I think a few years by this point. Um, not, not particularly enjoyable to read the way it's set up and formatted, but it's really like a big sandbox with a couple of uh, story arcs. Uh, done very, very well, um, huge campaign setting. Um, and in the old classic, um, the Salt Marsh series has always yeah. screamed to me because it had a little bit of everything, all three modules. You had, um, you know, classic trope, uh, haunted house, investigation, assault a ship, uh, lizard man lair in the swamp where you could use diplomacy or you could wipe them out, and then a big old bad fight in the third module underwater. So that, that kind of hit all the all the chords. And then, um, you know, the classic I-6 Ravenloft, which I think was the, the you know, cool maps, cool villain, cool backstory, the whole, you know, prophecy thing with the tarot card reading. 
Um, I think that one really uh, captured a lot of imagination that, uh, that will never be hit again on all those levels. <laughs> we will. <laughs> the first one that pops in my head is uh, Paul slash Janelle uh, Jack Kay's um, Caverns of Thracia. Uh, that one's really great. It's it's got some really uh, like complex maps, and there's a lot of like teleportation for you, uh, teleportation points where you go to this other land, and then you can find ways to come back again. And um, it's there's it's just very convoluted paths and. Uh, you can just make your own way through this thing, and uh, players can go in there multiple times and just never, uh, it's so com complex, I think, the way that uh, I've run it before and played in it, um, it's like people think it, talk about a totally different adventure each time because they like took different paths and went different places. I've always liked Two More Wars, just because it's a, it's just like a death trap, and like you said, it is about bragging rights, and it's so hard to get anywhere in that adventure. And you play it, you hear about stories of people playing it two times, three times, four times, and never really making it that far. You know, you learn what to do or not to do on this encounter, but then you die. So then you try the next encounter, you make it one more in, and it's just the I don't know the kind of adventure you all want to say you made it through, and not many people can actually say that. Cool. Any other questions you guys have? Yes. Hang on. Um, when I'm writing a horror campaign, it's a lot easier for me to deal with getting the players into that kind of emotion because I can set props up, I can work over a course of several different sessions to kind of set that oppressive kind of dread for a horror setting. If I wanted to write a module, something I expect to run in one, two sessions, how would I properly go about conveying that emotion? Or is horror just something that would be best left to not be sure uh, I mean, horror like comedy, I mean, it's subjective. It's really, I mean, the thing that can totally freak out, uh, you know, freak out one reader is just like, yeah, whatever, it's somebody else. So, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's a difficult one to, 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 to tackle. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, Ra I mean, we brought up Ravenloft. I mean, you know, and that, that's a classic one. And then that, I mean, that can work in the right, in the right, in the right, um, you know, in the right, if you have the proper context for it and the proper group of it. And again, I guess a lot of it comes down to what I was saying about uh, player investment. I mean, because if you get them invested in, in, in the module and care about the events which is going to happen to them, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a much more easier to drag them into that, to, to get them invested in that, and then to get that fear factor on it. But because for the most part, if, if you mean, I'd say it's easier if you're doing, if you're writing an adventure for like your home group. Then you, if you're trying to write one for commercially, because you know, because you have no idea what your audience is going to be on a commercial level. If you're writing something for your home group, you know what their buttons are, you know their hot issues, you know how far you can take them and then get them, you know, get them to give the heebie-jeebies and stuff. And sometimes it might just be a soundtrack played at the right time, or, or you know, or I like me personally, I, I dislike slugs. I mean, I've stepped on them barefoot in my time. They still give me the heebie-jeebies. So if I was in an adventure, like, hey, Mike, can you fall in this room? And then you look around, there's slugs, and they start crawling on you, and this and that. It would be like, all right, that's it, I'm out. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know, does anybody else have a way that you can kind of, like, a broad audience for that? Or Actually, maybe a different way of saying it is, you know, the con experience versus the play-at-home experience, whether it's horror or another genre. And at cons, people just play differently. You know, usually you play without continuity. You're, you know, you're not concerned about whether your character survives as much, because you're not going to be playing tomorrow night. So at least what I see is people do a lot more uh, last-ditch kind of stuff, take more risks, they just behave differently at cons, um, as opposed to at home where you don't want to lose that character you've been playing with for the last couple months. Um, so just know you can approach it differently. You assume I assume players will take more risks and be more daring at con adventures. I don't know if you guys have any more. Good.
I, I want to phrase this carefully. Um, I, I, I run a, uh, for Joseph, I run a, a group called the Cabal uh, that's largely comprised of third-party publisher writers uh, that we collaborate together where we do a tournament funnel and everybody writes a section. And uh, in doing one of those, I got back a submission. Um, this is not me being prudish, but it was uh, more profane than I knew Joseph would publish or, or be comfortable with. Um, uh, uh, a very specific digestive track dungeon section of an elder god uh, with a lot of things in there that uh, I don't think would work at an all-ages table. So my uh, editorial direction back to this particular writer was to think of it more in terms of Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith who didn't need to resort to those types of specifics to engender that sense of dread and horror as, as events build up. And uh, the writer took the notes and came back with something that was just as scary, uh, just as creepy, but uh, you know didn't involve anal polyp monsters and you know, fecal matter, interdimensional fecal matter. That I'm like, okay, well that's still. <laughs> I will say that you know D and D got it right because uh, they the way that D and D classic D and D instills fear in it is that like the worst monsters drain experience points and and that oh, levels, you're, you're, yeah. yeah well levels or yeah, yeah so yeah so that doesn't that doesn't get the that doesn't get the character that gets the player like oh my god it's like yeah, it's like you're wiping out all my you know my personal investment all my personal accomplishment so that that's one of those where if you can scare the player rather than the character I mean that that's uh, that's definitely the way to go. <laughs> I'm not saying drain level, but I'm saying if you can get that, if you can get the equivalent of drain of level drain into your, you know, into your audience, that they'll be like, okay, all right, yeah, we're, we're leaving now. That's it. <laughs> Joe, you, you seem to have experience with that. Will you laughed? No. <laughs> you seem especially pleased with that idea. No, I was thinking about the pilot monster stuff. <laughs> well, I mean. I just, I, I don't know why I feel this need to be super clear and politically correct. <laughs> you know, if, it, if I was editing a, a different adventure for, say, Lamentations of Flame Princess, then who cares? That's the target audience for, you know, more out there content than, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics. I, so it's not me being a prude or judging it in any way. And, and as individual judges and table by table, it's important to know your players because uh, some players will have triggers that you'll discover and you just don't want to put that in your game. Actually, let's talk about knowing your players, not in that way, but just writing to a group. Because there's, you know, the classic D&D trope assumes that you have basically, you know, a cleric. You always have to have a cleric, you have to have a thief, etc. Have you guys ever written adventures where you, um, we turn those assumptions on their head, right? The old story of, well, you were one that was the old thief adventure. Remember? Stardust. Start, yeah. Sure. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, and, and then Mike just came out of mm -hmm. the And then just, mm -hmm. sorry. Um, Spread the matter in real quick. Oh, in a dungeon, always make sure there's a key there. Yeah. And I'm speaking metaphorically. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a dungeon door. It could be anything. It could be, you know, if you have a plot, you know, if you have a mystery and there, you know, either you require a clue in order to decipher it, don't just put one clue in there and lead it down oh, to, yeah. okay, they have to make the skill roll in order to find this clue. You know, uh, I mean, these, you know, uh, the, the, if you follow the rule of three, like, okay, if it's a mystery, make sure that there are three clues that will allow them to, you know, to move on to the next phase. Or make sure 
or there's three ways to get through the impenetrable, impenetrable door, you know, whether it be a thief picks the lock or you find the key or you know the magic password or something like that. Because, I mean, because if you, if you make any of these assumptions, especially for a published adventure because you don't know what the, you know, what the makeup is going to be, what they're going to get around to it, they may not have that cleric or they may not have that, you know, half-dragon, half-spectre, wear-flea, dire prestige class or something that you've envisioned is, you know, necessary to, to move that on. So, uh, yeah, so do, do make, make branching paths rather than a single straight trail. Uh, I think that's the best way to go around it. Um, you know, with, with Lankmar, we, we've set up very much so. I mean, that you know, uh, we, we assume that there will be, you know, there will be wizards and there will be thieves and there will be, fire, you know, there will be warriors. Um, but we've actually worked in mechanics that allows you to, you know, you, you don't necessarily need any one of those, um, you know. Uh, so we try to put, you know, again, uh, you know, if, if, if it's a whole bunch of wizards, obviously there's going to be a lot of magic use and they can accomplish it doing magic use. Or, you know, if there's, if there's going to be all thieves, they can be stealthy and, and so this. Or they can just be all warriors and kick in the front door and, you know, solve problems with, with you know, with the old, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know, that kind of mentality. So. <laughs> Not to be like, I don't know, Silly, but like the, the, the any character's strongest power is not listed on the character sheet, right? Right. It's like so if there needs to be room for for player creativity mm -hmm. to, to 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 move around and and create in this world, and so it's it's the you know it's when we become trapped in our character sheets that um, and this is why playing with kids is so much fun, right? Because like a kid doesn't know they have power X, Y, or Z, and they, may, they haven't read what the hell Magic Missile does, but they know that their character can do anything in this world, so they can come up with a million ideas that we have adults that are trying to game the game system aren't, aren't going to come up with. And so, um, similarly, when, when, you, when you present an adventure, um, you want to provide space for creative solutions that I, as the author, never understood or couldn't come up with. Um, and so you can... It's, it's okay, especially in DCC, where the rules are fairly fluid, to, to set an impossible challenge, knowing that if it telegraphs that it's an impossible challenge, the players, being smart people, are going to come up with some crazy solution that has nothing to do with you know the five things that I left in the room to come up with. They're going to come up with a solution that only that five group of players could ever, you know, they're the ones that could only come up with that idea to, to deal with that challenge, and you just leave them the room to move. And that's the best when it happens. Right. When you're like, oh, I didn't think of that. It works. Yes. Yeah, well, I have a perfect example of that. Just uh, when I played with my eight-year-old daughter, we played some Labyrinth Lord adventure. And uh, it was the first time she had ever played uh, you know, D&D type of game. And uh, she came to you know a locked door for the first time. And uh, she, uh, I was like, you turn the door and it's locked. And she's like, OK, uh, well, I walk up the stairs back to the woods. And I'm like, OK. She's like, all right, I'm going to look for a beaver. <laughs> okay, find a beaver. I still didn't even know where she was going with it. And you know, we went down with this dream, and she like captured a beaver, and then she went back to the door. And she held the beaver to the door, but it changed to the door. I was like, oh, okay, I've never thought of that. It, on both, to what you, you both said, there's a, so as a publisher, I look at an adventure and I want the players to have fun playing it, right? They might die or they might live, but you should always have fun. If your typical D&D party has four classes, right, there's always the wizard, the warrior, the thief, and the cleric. They should all shine. So when I get adventures that have no undead, right, or there's not a single locked door in the adventure, or there's... Or they forgot to include the beaver. Oh, they right. <laughs> a beaver-free dungeon. But after every sort of four to six encounters, you know, every class should have some chance to shine in that set of encounters. Um, and not predictably, as there's always a locked door, there's always an undead, but something that lets every cla class feel special along the way. Um, that's great. But to your point, I also love it 
when you write an adventure and you don't really know how they're going to, like, it's okay to write encounters where you don't really know if it's going to be survivable at all, you know, and then go run it for some players and see if they come up with a solution. I have an adventure in the back of the DCC core book with the portal under the stars, which I personally run probably like three dozen times, and I've heard stories from many, many gamers who've run it, and a guy told me today about, he ran it for his group, and they had a solution to a room that I'd never heard before. It was just really cool that his players came up with a solution to a room that I've never heard of in dozens and dozens and dozens of times of either playing it or hearing it played. And that's cool. It's awesome when that happens. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't believe nobody ever thought of that before. Well, I mean, that's really the magic of our hobby, right? And that, yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's what we're here for. That yeah. almost goes back to the very first question that that young lady asked, where the answer is, don't worry about it too much. Yeah, that's true. Play your, play your adventure. See, see if the players come up with anything you never would have thought of. And maybe they'll figure it out on their own. Yeah. Well, guys, we have about five more minutes. Um, any last topics or last questions before we close out? Uh, now they all come. Why don't we start here? <laughs> we'll see if we can. Speed uh, round. Basically, what I'm just trying to figure out is what are any kind of like pitfalls or any major differential things that you have to do between writing for like your own close knit type of friends and you know trying to spread it out to more of a mass market type of thing. Lightning work. <laughs> all right, real quick. Um, Make sure you write out your ideas and give them to somebody else to read. Because they will read it and discover the gaping holes that you didn't realize you even had. Yeah, give it to another judge or GM and have them run the game and they'll come back with like tons of notes. Seriously. This is everything you could have done better. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> give it to somebody else to run. Yeah. Play test. Play test. Blind play yeah. test. Not you running it, somebody else running it. Um, you can sit in. Um, and, and take notes, but you, you will get an amazing amount of feedback from. And, and you know, if you have great, you have people who play. There's some groups out there that they just play test. That's what they do, and they rip things to shreds, and they're really good at it. Um, but uh, but that's you know, by far you'll learn a lot about your plot and your encounters just by doing that. And be willing to take it in, even when you disagree with it, and look at look at the feedback. Yeah, good call. Right, one more question over here. Uh, I've been thinking about when you said there's not really like bad adventure tropes like time traveler. Oh, it's just right. the ones nobody's figured out how to do right yet. Absolutely. What are examples either of ones you feel like we're still waiting for like the one with dinosaurs that works or like the one where you spend half of it underwater and it's not annoying or like what? <laughs> what yeah, like, you're nailing it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I really believe that passionately. Right. Like, like um, you know, I mean, like what you said, like, there is an awesome, awesome time travel adventure out there. We just haven't figured out the mechanic yet. And somebody's gonna have a cardboard cutout, and you know, and like, I don't know, like, I, they're, they're gonna figure out a way to do it, and we just haven't seen it yet. Um, I mean, you, you look at Red and Pleasant Land, right? Like, Alice in Wonderland, vampires, oh my god, it's done to death. No, it's brilliant. And so, um, you know, the, those, those adventures exist. They can totally be done. Um, and so, and, and it, all it takes is an author being passionate about it, you know, wanting to put, you know, your particular unique take. I mean, we live in a hobby where we're not passive. Like, all you people are creatives, you're creators, you know, you're all creating stuff for your games. And so, I mean, there's nothing particularly special about the people sitting at the head of the room. Um, you know, you all have something that you're particularly passionate about, and it's, it's just a, a, matter of, a matter of thinking it through enough and then, and then putting all your, your, you know, your thoughts into it and making it really, really cool. It so, requires a passion because it also requires hard work. Sure, but that's the same thing. <laughs> I was just saying, what are the things that make your adventure suck? What things right. That, no, that was good. That yeah. Want to do? I was that's wondering good. about that. One each. We'll go a couple yeah. sentences each. I'm gonna start with my curse. What, what my adventure? This my, my <laughs> onion? Is that? Yeah. What's <laughs> we give our apples? What's your apples and onions? Oh God. Um. Oh my God. Uh, anybody present here? Uh, 
Uh, uh, one that I absolutely, absolutely hated. Not, not um, the adventure you hate, but all, like a specific aspect of adventure writing or... Oh, the, that I, that, that I, the part of the adventure? What part? makes an adventure suck? The, yeah, exactly. I, the, the, the second element. The part that I don't like? Or, yes. We have stopped him. Yeah. Um, just, uh, oh god. Yeah, why don't we, why don't Chris, okay. why don't we'll yeah. come back. <laughs> I'll say, we already talked about it, but that choke point, and, and you know, the, the locked door, that's not necessarily the metaphor for the locked door, but, you know, that choke point where um, they have to do X, Y, or Z to move the adventure yeah. forward, and them getting stumped, and, and it can be very frustrating for players, and uh, you need to try and avoid that. Uh, one for me is a linear, linear map. Yeah. There's just yeah. one conga line that they're traveling through, or just not very many uh, choices that they can make, that, that just kills an adventure for me. Yeah. I mean, you might have picked up on it, but too much backstory, just lots and lots of convoluted backstory that doesn't apply to most groups. I'd rather have stuff that can apply to most people most of the time and just get moving. I actually catch myself doing this, but uh, what annoys me are just uh, tropes that are in, that, where no effort was made to expand the trope. The opposite of what Har Harley was talking about. I mean, you, you can find a new creative approach on any cliche or trope, but you know you just walk in and you know there's an an, an emo drought. I'm done. I'm putting it down at that point, you know, or uh, you know, <laughs> personally, you got this emo. I think for me, um, I deserve to be flogged every time I write a door with a strength check, and I've done it. It's, oh, like, I deserve to be flogged. If, if, if is that bad? Because I've got that going on right yeah, now. I'll take it out. Quick. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I take that note before it's too late. Yeah. No. Um, if the roll doesn't matter, if they're gonna stand there and like, uh, okay, you know, I picked the lock. Well, no, you try. Can I try it again? Yes. I mean, if the roll doesn't matter, don't include it. Yeah. Okay. I am agility checks. I am guilty of that a hundred times yeah. over. If the roll does matter, if it's if the if the door is locked, you need a twenty-five to break it down because the giant's coming behind you. Right. The roll matters. But if the roll doesn't matter, if it's just a locked door and they have all the time in the world, ah, whatever. Let's be find the venue for and chew it down. That's thirty years of gaming is what that is. Is that they have because you know because well, I haven't I learned yet. No, <laughs> we've, we've grown up on that. Like that was kind of like you know that's how we were taught because yeah. that's what we read. You know how the adventures yeah. were. Like there were I mean basic D and D. You know there was a you know you had to roll to check every door if you could open it whether it was locked or not. You know there was this you know uh, it's stuck. I need a two on a six. Ex ex exactly exactly. So I mean that that's ingrained and that yeah, yeah, that, yeah like, falling. I'm falling too much prey of that. Yeah, that that's, that's the part of the work. And I'm guilty of that just as well, you know. That's why you all are going to be better writers. Right. Than <laughs> don't do what we do. And, and that was much better. Write adventures instead of doing stuff. Thanks a lot, guys. If you have any tickets, if you didn't get a chance to bring them up, just bring them up at the end. And thanks for your time.